You know, that's a blessing of preaching two services. Amen. You get to hear all that twice. Yeah, so thank God for that good singing this morning. And thank you, Brother Aaron, for again leading us into the presence of the Lord through the music. And just I appreciate that young lady. I wish she was here so I could tell her how much I appreciate the song she sang. And uh, I was thinking that Ann Wilson better be careful. Amen. <laughs> Some of y'all, y'all know who I'm talking about. Amen. Thank God for her. And, and uh, I was thinking about one song we sang congregationally where we talked about being a child of God. I am a child of God. And I was reminded, I thought again, of a video clip I saw just a couple of weeks ago. And I would encourage you to Google this. It'll bless you, not while I'm preaching. Amen, but later on. <laughs> but uh, a little six-year-old boy, and he's, uh, he's an orphan, but he had uh, been with these foster parents. And uh, they're telling him that he's no, they're not going to just as foster, but, but they adopted him on that day that they're uh, filming this. And, uh, and so they're trying to explain to him what happened. And so at first, you can tell he's not getting it. He's six years old. And then all of a sudden, it dawns on him. He says, I'm adopted? I'm adopted? And then he, he was sitting down at that point. Then he jumped up. He began jumping down and raising his hands. And I, yay, 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 I'm adopted. And Brother Aaron, as God's my witness, I wanted to jump up and said, man, I'm adopted by God. Amen. I want to say, yay, yay. <laughs> Amen. Well, what a blessing that is. Because yes. yeah, I've, I've got two biological sons. We never adopted any. You know, we uh, had no choice with them. Amen. And, Amen. But see, adopted children are chosen on purpose. So if you're saved, you're no accident in the family of God. You were chosen by God on purpose. Amen. Thank God for that. Well, let me just say I appreciate again Brother Charles giving me this opportunity to be with you uh, this morning. And, uh, and I appreciate this church. And some of you came up to me earlier and said, I, I recognize you. I want to say if you've been to the post office lately, but anyway. And uh, no, but I have been to several of the conferences. And, and in fact, I was sharing with someone earlier uh, that uh, you used to have the afternoon services. And I think I ruined that because I preached one of those. And after that, he never had it, I guess. You know, I ruined it. But anyway, that's been several years ago now. But I appreciate the opportunity to be back with you this morning. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of the Word of God and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter number 4. The book of Philippians, chapter number 4. And uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 10. And when you find that, if you're able, let me just invite you, if you would, please just to stand uh, with your uh, Bibles open or even your devices turned on. Amen. Philippians, chapter 4. And uh, we'll begin reading in verse 10 and read down through verse 13. Philippians chapter 4, and beginning in verse 10. Notice your Bible says, and this is Apostle Paul writing this letter to these, uh, to these Philippian believers. Uh, but he's writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, in my lifetime, I've written many letters. But I'll say this, they were not inspired by the Holy Ghost. But these, this letter, these words that Paul wrote here to them, was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, he says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, 
that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now, you probably were not all that familiar. I know you've read them, but we're not all that familiar with those verses we just read. But I guarantee you probably everybody here knows this 13th verse. And so would you, and you can read along in your Bible, would you, would, would you say that 13th verse of Philippians 4 out loud together with me? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's do it one more time. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Now, for the next few moments, again, hopefully the helper of the Lord being my helper during this service, I, I want to talk to you, preach to you about this following thing that we see in this passage, and that is very simply that Jesus is enough. Now, before you see, let me say this to you, that contrary to what... Uh, who is referred to as America's pastor, a very popular pastor in America, contrary to what he preached uh, not that long ago, where in that message he said to his people in his church that you are enough. Folks, I want to say you aren't. But I also want to say this, neither am I. I'm not enough. You aren't enough. I'm not enough. We aren't enough. But Jesus is. Amen. Jesus is enough. You may be seated. One of my favorite Christian songs is a song entitled Enough, and it was written by Elias Dummer. Now, the chorus of that song simply says, Jesus, you are enough. Jesus, you are enough for me. With nothing, I still have everything. Jesus, you are enough for me. Now, this morning, I'm convinced that that would have been the Apostle Paul's thing song if he had a thing song because simply and basically, that's what he declares in these verses. I mean, when you boil down what I just read to you in these verses here in Philippians 4, what he was saying is the bottom line is what he's saying is that Jesus is enough. But I want you to notice that this truth that Jesus is enough involves at least three things that he mentions in this, in this passage. First of all, this truth, again, that Jesus is enough involves a lesson that is learned. A lesson that is learned. And that's what we see Paul talk about in verses 10 and 11. Now, you need to understand, again, that this letter, this little letter of Paul to the Philippian believers in Jesus, was actually a thank you note that he sent to them by way of Epaphroditus, his co-laborer in Christ, one of his co-laborers in Christ, thanking them for that financial gift that they had gave to him that he had just recently received. And that's exactly why he said in verse 10, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, speaking of their financial care of him. And then he went on and said, wherein you were also careful, speaking of their concern for him. But then he said, ye lacked opportunity. Now it's interesting to me that that phrase in that 10th verse where he said, hath flourished again means literally is revived. 
And you know, we talk a lot about, and we, sometimes we sing about revival, but all revival is, is believers, like most of us here, this one believes in Jesus, like you and I, beginning to flourish again, flourishing again. And the honest to God truth is, the reason we need revival is because we do, if we're not careful, we begin to flounder in the things of God. But when, real, when God begins to revive our souls, we begin to flourish again in the things of the Lord. And also notice, and this, I think this is um, consistent with the context in which Paul is writing here, that when real Bible revival comes, one of the areas that is affected is our giving to the work of the Lord. But now, lest they think that he was one of those evangelists or one of those uh, missionaries who would, who would pace the floor back and forth, wringing his hands and and, uh, and, and go to uh, the, the, the mailbox every day or to the post office box at the post office to what we evangelists refer to as the Wailing Wall. Now, as I told them in the earlier service, if you want to know what that is, ask me after the service, I'll tell you what that is, that, that Wailing Wall at the post office. To, and Paul didn't do that to see if any money was in the mail, unless they thought he would do that. He said in verse 11 again, not that I speak in respect of all. For he says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And here's what Paul was saying. Now, I am grateful to the gift that you gave to me, but understand, even though I'm, I'm a priest above it, I'm really not anxious about it. Now, I want you to notice that word content. Uh, that, that word content there means satisfied, and it means to be at peace with yourself. In fact, it means to be self-sufficient, but it is not a self-sufficiency that is within yourself. It means to be self-contained, not needing any outside assistance. And what's interesting to me is that that word content was originally used in that first century world of a country that was self-sufficient and self-contained that did not need imports from other countries from outside itself in order to survive. Now, I want you to notice when he said state, he was not talking about the geographical, geographical location that he was living in at that time. Now, I don't have to say this in a lot of other states, but I do have to say this in the state of Texas where I live. Because I know there are some Texans, probably some Texans here this morning, who would say the reason they know that Paul was not a Texan is because no Texan in his right mind would ever say, I'm content in whatever state I'm in. Amen. And all the Texans say, amen. No, that word state there refers to the condition. It refers to the circumstance, the context, or the situation that he was living in at that time. And I want you to uh, notice again that Paul says, I have learned this. In, in other words, this contentment he's talking about that I'm talking about this morning is not automatic. This being content or self-sufficient, self-contained, satisfied, or at peace in every state or circumstance or condition or situation in life is something that is learned. It's a truth, it's a principle that you and I must learn. Now, now folks, I know, I can just tell by the way some of you are looking at me right now, I, I know that I lost some of you because I realize that one of the dirtiest words in the English language is this word learned. I mean, brother, we, we, we don't want to learn anything. I, I mean, we want everything now, if not sooner. <laughs> and, and right now in our nation, we live in the day of what I refer to as the quick fix. I mean, think with me about this. 
I mean, we live in the day of instant credit and, and instant cash and, and instant coffee and even instant church, amen. I remember several years ago, um, I think it was mentioned already this morning that Debbie, my wife, and I, we live in Rowlett, uh, just east of Dallas, next to Rockwall. And, and a few years ago, there is a church building not far from where we live, and they've had several different churches meeting uh, in that particular building. But I think in the prior church to the churches meeting there now, they, they had, a, they had a, a couple of services uh, every Sunday morning. And one of the services they had, as God is my witness, they advertised on, on their sign as an express service. I mean, that's what it said. Express service that started at 9 and ended at 9.30. And when my wife and I saw that, I, I said, bless God, sometimes I can't get my introduction to my sermon out in 30 minutes, and, it, and much less an entire service. And she said, amen. <laughs> now, I, I know some of y'all are probably wondering, well, Brother Mike, couldn't God just zap me right now in this service with a good dose of this contentment? And let me say, I guess he could, because God is God. He can do anything he wants to. But that's, I'm just telling you one of the things I learned. That's usually not the way he works. And I know all of you, others of you are probably wondering or maybe thinking, maybe one or two of you are thinking this. Well, Brother Mike, why won't we do this? Why don't you, after you finish preaching and you give the invitation, I'll come down there and you pull a Benny Hinn on me. Amen? And... Uh, won't you, when I come down there, won't you pop me on the forehead or you breathe on me or you blow on me and, and, and I pass out and when I come to, I'll have this contentment. And let, let me just say, no, I couldn't do, well, on second thought, I guess I could do that. Let me say this, you could come down here to the invitation and I could breathe on you, I could on you. And, and let me say, you probably would pass out, but I can pretty much guarantee you, Folks, that ain't the Holy Ghost. That's more like holy halitosis. Amen. <laughs> and what I'm trying to get you to see today is that this contentment, and this is what the Word of God is teaching, is that this content, contentment is something that is learned. This truth that Jesus is enough involves a lesson that is learned. As Adrian Rogers said, in salvation, there's nothing to earn, but there is much to learn. But then th this glorious truth that Jesus is enough involves not only a lesson that is learned, but also, notice second of all, it involves a life that is lived. And that's what Paul is talking about in verse 12. And folks, I want you to hear me this morning. If you've truly been saved by the grace of God in that moment of salvation, not only did he save us, but he did a lot of other great things in our life that probably we're not even aware of, uh, this morning. But one of the things that God did the moment we truly got saved is that he enrolled us in a school. I bet you didn't know that when you got saved, that, that God in that moment enrolled you in a school, and that school is life. And this school of life also has a curriculum, which are all the experiences of life that you and I go through. Now, I want you to notice that, again that Paul says, I know. Now, that word know there doesn't just mean he was just said, I know this in the sense of, a, uh, of an intellectual sense. It's just not knowledge in the sense of intellectual knowledge, but rather it means what he's saying is, I, yeah, I, I know in the sense of intimate, experiential, practical knowledge. Here's what Paul is saying. What I'm talking to you about this contentment, I know this by experience. 
by person. I just didn't read about this in a book or on a scroll. I, I know this by personal experience. I know this by just living life. Now, what Paul says in verse 12, everywhere and in all things I am instructed, he is referring to the school that God has us enrolled in. Now, I want you to notice what he's saying. He is saying, everywhere I go, and everything that happens to me or just daily life is the school in which God has enrolled me. He is saying that the events of life are my instructors. They, they are my teachers that God uses. In other words, folks, I want you to listen to me this morning that for the child of God, as we sang about, there is nothing, and, and you highlight, underscore that word, nothing. There is nothing that happens to us that is incidental, coincidental or accidental rather it's all providential or the activity of God in our life and folks I want you to hear me this morning that our life as a child of living God is just not a series of delightful activities or even disastrous accidents but rather our life day by day is a series of divine appointments by God so when you and I go through difficult days, maybe you're going through some right now, we shouldn't just ask, Brother Mike, why, why is God doing, th doing this to me? Or why is God allowing this? Or why is this happening to me? But we ought to ask, what is God trying to teach me? What is he trying to teach me? And folks, one of the things we need to understand that for the child of God's situations are not just events for you and I to go through, but rather, they are indeed events for you and I to grow through. Then I want you to notice also, Paul not only identifies what the school is, but also he identifies what the studies are. Here's the curriculum. Here's the studies in the school in which God has us enrolled. To be abased and to abound. To be full and to be hungry. To abound and to suffer need. Now, obviously and evidently, one of the things you ought to get out of this is that Paul was not one of those health and wealth prosperity preachers that said he was healthy and wealthy all the time. No, so notice what he's saying. God has us enrolled in a school, and the studies or the curriculum are all the things, all the things, not some of the things or even most of the things, but all the things in life every experience of life and that includes yes the good things of life and the bad things of life and even the ugly things of life that you and i go through as a child of god and here's what paul is saying he said i've learned now in the context of, of this thank you note for their financial gift he said i've learned that when the offerings are coming in from the churches and i'm full it doesn't add a thing to me that, that, that's why he said in verse 11, not that I speak in respect of want. He is saying, I've learned even when the offerings are not coming in and I'm empty and abased. It, it doesn't take anything from me. He is saying, I've learned that more possessions don't make me glad and less possessions don't make me sad. He is saying, I've learned how to be content. I've learned how to be self-contained, how to be independent of these external circumstances and situations of life. Now, I, I know some of y'all probably think right now, well, Brother Mike, the, the, the reason Paul could say this is because he didn't have it as bad as I've got it right now. Well, well can I just remind you <laughs> of the context from which Paul wrote this? It's interesting that the words we just read and that I'm sharing with you this morning 
that he said those things, he wrote those things in a jail cell. <laughs> From a dungeon in a woman in a Roman prison, as far as he knew, waiting to be tried and executed by Emperor Nero, who hated Christians and who enjoyed, I, I mean, he was perverted. He, he, he enjoyed capturing Christians and taking those Christians and tying them to poles, covering them with tar, setting them on fire, and then lighting his gardens with them. That, that, that is a matter of historically documented fact. I mean, the light poles for, his, for Nero's gardens were the burning bodies of believers in Jesus. And so in that first century world, when they said in those days that somebody was on fire for Jesus, <laughs> brother, they meant it. Literally, they were literally on fire for the Lord. Paul basically said the same thing over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. Now, now listen to these extremes. And, and this is the way life is. I mean, these extremes, see if you can't identify with some of them. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 8 through 10. He said, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastised and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Did you hear what he just said? What he was saying is, he said, really, this makes no sense, but he was saying he was like a living corpse. It's kind of like he was a spiritual zombie. He, he was saying he was a wealthy pauper or a bankrupt millionaire. But what he's saying is, is that he learned the sufficiency of the Savior through all these extremes of life. And folks, I want to tell you, that not only was true of the Apostle Paul, that, but that's true of every child of God here this morning. If you truly been saved. And the Christian life, I mean, we Christians, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but we Christians, if we're truly saved, are indeed walking, talking contradictions. I mean, brother, a lot of stuff we go through and experience makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. In fact, the entire Christian life from start to finish is a paradox. And if you don't understand that, folks, you know nothing about the Christian life. That's why the Bible says that as followers of Christ, we, we die to live. <laughs> we we, 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 we give to get, we, we lose to win, we fail to succeed, we deny ourselves in order to find ourselves. You know, I, I got to think about this some time back as I was working on this message, and I said, you know, Paul must have frustrated that old devil to no end. Because no matter what the devil did, he, he couldn't beat him. And I began to imagine this imaginary scenario and one day the devil approaches Paul, and, and again, you won't find this in your Bible, this is just some sanctified imagination. The old devil approaches Paul one day and says, Now, Paul, have I got a deal for you, son? He said, If right now, here now, if, if, you will, if you will reject Christ, renounce your faith in Christ, and if you will serve me, I'll give you everything your heart could ever desire or need. And based on what we're seeing here in Philippians 4, probably Paul would have probably responded something like this. Well, 
devil. Thanks, but no thanks, because I have everything I want and need. Amen. But then perhaps the devil will say, all right then, if you don't renounce Christ, and if you won't serve me and follow me, then I'll take everything from you. To which again, Paul would probably respond, well, well go ahead, help yourself, because I don't have anything. But let me ask you a question. How, how, how do you beat somebody like that? Defeat, you, you can't. I mean, you go to this same little letter of Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You, you know what he was saying? And again, he wrote that from prison. He said, look, while I'm here, it's Jesus. And when I die and get there, it's Jesus with heaven thrown in. Amen. He, he said, brother, tails I win, ta uh, heads I win, tails I win. He said, there's no way I can lose in that deal. Now, brother, you can't beat somebody like that or defeat somebody like that. And, and, and so again, and one of the things you and I must learn, as Paul evidently did, we must learn to hold all things loosely that are connected to this world and life. So we can learn this truth that Jesus is enough by just Simply living life. I mean, the highs and the lows of life and the ups and downs, the good times and the bad times, and the times we have more than enough and the times we have less than enough. I mean, folks, God can bring us to the point to where like Job, we can say after he lost his farm and his family, you remember what he said there? In Job chapter 1, verse 21, he said, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed, blessed be the name of of the Lord. But then finally this morning, this truth that Jesus is enough involves not only a lesson that is learned and a life that is lived, but last of all, it involves a Lord that loans or gives. And that's what we see in our 13th verse. Now that phrase, through Christ which strengthens me, means through Christ who gives me strength. Now, this verse, again, is pro probably perhaps one of the most well-known, memorized verses in all the Bible, but also is one of the most taken out of context and misapplied verses in the Bible. I mean, folks, and I've heard people use it. We, we, we've used this verse, I can do all things to mean I can do anything, in the sense of I can do everything literally. I, 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 can, do, I, I can do any job I want to work. I, I can... I can play any instrument. I can play any sport. I can move any uh, mountain. I can perform any miracle. I can do anything and everything I want to do through Christ who gives me strength. But folks, in the context of this passage, that's not what Paul is saying at all. In the context, he is saying that you and I, as a child of God, can face and handle every circumstance of life through Christ. Regardless of the situation, whether good or bad, we can handle it through Christ who lives within us and gives us the power. And very simply, basically, what Paul is saying is, listen, I am ready for anything and everything through Christ who gives me strength. Bring it on, amen, whatever it is. Hey, here's what he's saying. I can be abased. I can abound. I can be full. I can be hungry. I can abound, I can have needs. I am content, independent of these external circumstances. I can face and handle any and every situation of life through Christ who continually loans or gives or infuses or pours strength and power in and through me and my life. 
That's the lesson that he learned that you and I, as a child of God, must begin to learn even today. Years ago, I heard Ron Dunn at Milldale in South Louisiana tell this true story of an old man in England who was very wealthy and had one son. That son was a, uh, was a pilot in the British military, but he was killed in World War II. Eventually, the wealthy old man died as well, and since he had no heirs, his estate was to be auctioned off according to his will. Now, part of his estate included a, a, a just a, a fabulous, what they called a fabulous art collection. One of the auction houses in London undertook the task of auctioning off those paintings, many of which were masterpieces. And so on the day of the auction, people gathered at this day from all over the United Kingdom because they wanted the chance to buy some of the, the pieces in that grand art collection. But as the auction started, the auctioneer came up with an easel and he placed a portrait, a picture on that easel and it was a picture, a portrait of that man's son whom nobody, for the most part, nobody there knew. And generally, the people who were there thought it was absolutely worthless because not only did nobody know that boy, nobody knew the artist who painted it, so no one bid on it. But it just so happened that in the audience that day, there was one of that old man's lifetime servants who knew and loved that boy from the time he was born to the time he died. And he just thought to himself, you know, it'd be nice <laughs> to have that portrait. And since nobody is bidding, bidding he, he was thinking that he could probably get it cheap. He didn't have a lot of money, so, so, so he bid. Now, the auctioneer also said that the man's will stated that before any of the other art pieces could be sold, that one of the son had to be sold first. And so since the other people wanted to get to the masterpieces, no one else bid. And since the servant was the only bid, even though it was a low bid, he got it. And everybody was relieved because they're thinking, oh yeah, now buddy, we can get to the good stuff now. But to everybody's shock, the auctioneer got back up and said, ladies and gentlemen, the auction is now over. And as you can understand, everybody was shocked. Everybody was stunned. The auctioneer went on to explain that the man's will further stipulated that whoever got the picture, whoever got the portrait of the son, got it all. <laughs> got, the, got the entire estate. I mean, here's what he said. Whoever gets the son gets it all. Now, folks, I, I want you to hear me this morning. Can I remind you that if we're saved, brother, we, we are complete in Christ. And we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings, blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. And with him, God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And folks, I want you to hear me this morning that God the Father has stipulated in his new will and covenant that we call the New Testament, that whoever gets a son gets it all. 
That's why in Romans chapter 8, Paul said that we are joint heirs with Christ, which means share and share life. Whatever Jesus gets, I get. Amen. And folks, that's why this morning I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what I'm trying to say, if you haven't already called on, I'm trying to tell you that Jesus is enough. <laughs> and he's enough for me. I hope he's enough for you. Let me break that down for you. Jesus is enough when I want and when I don't. Jesus is enough when I'm abased and when I abound. Jesus is enough when I'm full and when I'm hungry. Jesus is enough when I have enough and when I don't. Jesus is enough in the good times and in the bad times. Jesus is enough on the mountains and in the valleys. Jesus is enough in victory and even in defeat. Jesus is enough in sickness and in health. Jesus is enough when I succeed and even when I fail. Jesus is enough everywhere and in every situation and circumstance of life. Jesus is enough. Period. Case closed. End of story. Folks, all I'm trying to get you to see this morning is that all we really need, we already have in Jesus. But having said that, we won't really realize all we need, we already have in Jesus until Jesus is all we have. But when Jesus is all we have, we'll realize that he's all that we need. Amen. I'm not done. I'm not done yet. Just about. Hang in there. The plane's coming in for a landing. I got the landing gear lowered, but we ain't landing yet. <laughs> well, we see this truth so powerfully demonstrated. There's a lot of passages we could go to. But, but Matthew 17, now, do you remember this account where, where Jesus took Peter, James, and John on this mountain? And because of this experience, they, they named the Mount of Transfiguration. You, you know what I'm talking about? Matthew 17. And the Bible says there in Matthew 17 that here's Jesus on this mount with Peter, James, and John, that he was transfigured before them. Now, we don't have a lot of time to get all that, get into all that, what that means, but that word transfigure, look it up in your Greek dictionary. I mean, I know we got all Greek scholars here this morning, but, but it's interesting that word transfigured is, is, uh, is the translation of the Greek word metamorpho. Can, can y'all think of a similar word we use today? Metamorphosis. You learned this in biology, 101. And uh, basically, metamorphosis is a process where the inner nature begins to express itself outwardly. And that's what happened to Jesus. See, Jesus, he was fully man, but also he was fully God robed in that humanity. And in that moment, it's as if he pulled back the veil of his humanity, his flesh. And gave a glimpse to Peter, James, and John as to who he really was. And, the, and remember, the Bible says that his, his countenance began to shine as the sun, and his clothing became white became bright white as the light and they, they saw and, and that reveals to us one of the things that is true of god and his godness what i refer to as his god is god and his bare essence there's a lot of things the bible reveals about god but one of the things that god reveals about himself in the bible is that among other things we can say about him is that he is light first john chapter one says that god is light and in him there is no darkness at all one preacher said years ago, that's why, that's why when God the Son came to the earth over 2,000 years ago, that's why he robed his deity with our humanity, because if he hadn't done that, it never would have been nighttime in Israel. Amen. Because God is light. 
That's why you go over those last two chapters, book of Revelation, what do you find? In the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. It says it has no need of the sun or the moon. Why? Because God and the Lamb is the light thereof. And so they had this vision of Jesus in his unveiled deity. And then another thing happened. If that wasn't enough, these two visitors show up. Moses and Elijah. Y'all remember that? Moses and Elijah showed up. Now Matthew says they began talking with Jesus about some things. But Matthew's account, he doesn't reveal what he's talking about. You have to go to Luke chapter 9, verse 31. And Luke's account, this same experience and event, to see what Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about. Luke chapter 9, verse 31 says that Moses and Elijah, when they showed up, they began talking with Jesus about his coming decease at Jerusalem. Now, here's what it, what's interesting. And I, I want to say this Greek word not to try to impress you, but that word, that Greek word translated as decease in Luke 9, 31, it's the word exodus. They was talking to Jesus about his coming exodus. Uh, this word. That ought to ring a bell for somebody. Yeah. Exodus, the second book of your Bible. Guess who wrote it? Moses. <laughs> One of those guys who's talked to Jesus. Here's Moses who led the first exodus of God's people out of Egyptian bondage, talking to Jesus about his exodus out of this world. And then the Bible said if that were, wasn't enough, this cloud enveloped that mountain. And they heard the voice of God the Father speak from that cloud, saying, this is my son, talking about you, this is my son, hear ye him, listen to him. But then the Bible says, basically, that vision of Jesus and his unveiled deity vanished. All they saw now was his humanity, fully God, but fully man. The visitors, Moses and Elijah, they went back home to heaven. And the voice of God was silent. And Matthew says, Matthew 17, they saw, when, when they looked up, because when they heard the voice of God, brother, they fell on their face. It says, when they looked up, they saw no man save Jesus only. I mean, they still had Jesus. And then, I think it's verse 9, the Bible says, folks, when you read your Bible, just don't read your Bible. You need to read your Bible when you read your Bible. And pay attention to words, even little bitty words. There's a little two-letter word. After all that, it says, and as they came down the mountain. In other words, it wasn't just the case. Peter, James, and John came down, but it says, they, Jesus, came down with them. Amen. And not only did they still have Jesus, but they found out that Jesus was enough because next thing they had when they get down the foot of the mountain, down there, back down there in the valley, first thing they confronted was a demon-possessed boy and his dad, and Jesus, Jesus was enough. Jesus was sufficient. And folks, I'll just say this to you. You may be on the mountain today, but you're going to come down off that mountain. But here's the good news. When you come down, if you're safe, Jesus comes down with you. Amen. And again, I'm just telling you, Jesus is enough. Let's stand together if we could. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes.
Every head bowed, every eye closed this morning. I, I realize that in a crowd this size, there's bound to be somebody. What I've been preaching, you have no comprehension of it whatsoever, that Jesus is enough. Because you've never trusted Jesus to save you. You've never been saved. And I want to tell you, all the stuff you're trying to find satisfaction, you'll never, that there's no satisfaction, brother, in this world, the things of this world. It will never be enough. It will never be enough. I remember just rather recently, I read a, a statement about John D. Rockefeller, who in the late 1800s, early 1900s, was one of the wealthiest men in the world. And he was asked by a reporter in an interview, he said, one of the wealthiest men in all the world, John D. Rockefeller, said, how much is enough? How much is enough? And the story goes that John D. Rockefeller responded by saying, just a little more. Just a little more. See, the stuff this world never satisfies. But I guarantee you, Jesus does. I mean, even if the world strips from you everything you've got, your health, your wealth, your family, brother, if you're, hey, you still got Jesus, amen. But if you don't know that, you can get that settled this morning. And I would encourage you, well, Jason's here, I'm here. If you, if you need to get, if you're not sure you're saved, won't you get that settled this morning? And maybe you're here this morning, you know you're saved, but man, you're going through some stuff. Maybe you're, maybe you're not going through a storm right now, but hang on, brother. My brother Bill Stafford used to say, we're either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or heading toward a storm. Amen. Just hang on. 